Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today, coming all the way from Scotland, is Colin Johnston. Colin, welcome to the show. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me, dude. I said that you were in Scotland, but you came from Scotland. You are now living in Eugene, Oregon, so you're one of us now. Uh, I am. I yeah. Am. Technically Springfield. Technically Springfield. Me too. Uh, uh, in an undisclosed wife, location. Yeah, my wife doesn't let me tell people it's Springfield because she grew up in Eugene. Uh, that's so funny because I grew up in Springfield and now I, I used to be that way. And now I would be ashamed to say I live in Eugene. I think that it's flipped. But uh, thanks for doing this. I came across you through the work that I do with the Democratic Party of Lane County. I think you are officially a PCP. Is that correct? I am not. No, okay. I am just uh, I help out. I am general dog's body. So a little bit of design, mostly volunteering. Right. Uh, it's cool. I know we're going to talk about it immigration and a bit so i'll explain why i'm not named okay cool yeah so yeah i'm a precinct committee person for the democratic party of lang county and basically all i do is uh the podcast i don't really do anything else to help anything but uh i go to meetings and i learn a lot and i network and you're one of the people that is now attending our meetings and bring something completely different to the table and that's what i love about the dplc in in lang county the Democratic Party has a huge umbrella of people just with all different experiences and, and, and walks of life. So it's really cool. So let's get into it. We have a lot to talk yeah. about. Uh, you immigrated. Let's talk about your immigration, and then we'll talk about some of your education research. So Sure. You, yeah, so Tell me about how you decided to move to Eugene specifically. So Eugene specifically, my wife's grew up here. So born and raised out um, other side of Eugene from here. Uh, she went to U of O and then when she went to grad school in Kansas, uh, deliberately to get her PhD, then come back. And that was like 2004. And yeah, we just got back here last summer. So yeah, we, we came up from Austin, Texas. Uh, I was doing my master's in education down there. Um, Stacey ha was working and then COVID hit. We both went remote. We came up here for a three week vacation um, last June. So June, 2020. And about a week and a half into the vacation, we both were like, Let, let's just stay. Let's yeah. just not go back. Um, so we did. And actually, today is the year anniversary of me driving all of our stuff back up from oh, Austin. Wow. So now, Texas. Now, going from Scotland to Texas had to have been a tremendous culture shock. So tell me about so, that. So I spent a lot of time, I was a study abroad director, admissions director in higher ed back home for 
10 years. And so I spent a lot of time out here in the States. Um, that being said, it was weird. And I think my biggest culture shock was expecting Austin to be more liberal than it was. Now, don't get me wrong, like, Austin is liberal by Texas standards. Like, there's no debate in that. But, like, it's not liberal by any other metric. Like, Eugene Springfield feel liberal to me, even, like, with the elements of the right wing we've got here, which weren't necessarily seen in Austin. I feel like this is a much more liberal city. Yeah. Um, And the heat, man. The heat. <laughs> Well, it's hard to complain like, about heat somewhere else right now in Oregon because it's it's. Brutal. I mean, but it's temporary. So yeah, what we we're gonna hit thirty-five degrees Celsius today. Y'all can do the conversion. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. So now um, you we talked I talked briefly. You've worked as an education researcher. You had mentioned that you got your master's in education at the University of Texas at Austin, but also two law degrees at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, with a focus on equity and inclusion using CRT as a framework. And so I want to talk today a little bit about critical race theory, what your, what your interpretation, it's such a hot button issue and people, I mean, people's yeah. hair get, get, you know, catches fire when we talk about it. But for first of all, when you say that you're an education researcher, what does that mean? Yeah. One thing very quickly, Edinburgh. Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Okay. Yep. Y'all get y'all going to Ireland soon. You'll get beat down if you throw heavy G's around, man. Sure, sure. Like, um, yeah, no hard R's either. But uh, any, no. anyway, so what would but you? Yeah, Edinburgh. So okay, education research. Really, so I'm a, I'm trained as a social studies teacher. Got my certifications. I'm ESL, so English as a second language certified. <clears throat> um, but really, my research was sparked by so the degree I was doing was urban teaching. It was specifically geared to work in inner city schools particularly, but primarily schools with high percentages of uh, students of color, non-traditional students, you know, English language learners or low socioeconomic status. So for example, the last school I taught in was 75% Latinx, um, but 20% black, and the remaining 5% were either two races or more Asian Pacific Islander and like half a percent, 1% white. Of all of those kids, like 75, 70% were considered below the poverty line and 30% of those kids had no fixed home uh, and were, were sort of called mobile. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I saw those kids facing like a lot of the little issues and you know the things that were going on in the schools were the same things that I saw when I grew up in Scotland, just coloured by race instead of religion. And you know, in my readings, I was like, I understand a lot of this, but you know, despite being a white, you know, working class, lower middle class guy, there was so much of the the struggles and the issues that students were facing. I was like, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from, and I'd started my career working with uh, non-traditional students in Scotland, so sort of first-generation kids. I loved doing that. I was a first-generation kid. Uh, both me and my brother were the first of our family ever to go to college. Um, now both first in our ever family tree ever to have master's degrees. Uh, like, my grand's like, y'all are. Like, I don't even understand. So by first-generation, that's what you mean, right? You're talking about first-generation, yeah. like, educated, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so what we, what I, like, I really enjoyed working with those kids and I'd kind of, I got to the point in my career where I was, I wasn't talking to students anymore. You know, I was doing pretty high level strategy and working with like principals and deans instead of the kids. And I realized I was like, I actually miss their honesty and some of the stuff they come out with. Yeah. And I've been looking for a career change, found the degree at UT. Stacey had got the uh, job in Austin. So we're like, let's do it. Yeah. Let's give so, it a try. We And a lot of times, yeah, I mean, the work that you can be doing, you know, a lot of work on a big scale, but sometimes that feels like you're not making that human connection, you know? So are you trying to get back into teaching at a, like yeah, a high school so level? Yeah, so the plan or? is plan is to teach, hopefully, uh, continue to get my PhD. Um, but my research is actually sort of really focused in on, it's good that you mentioned, like, making a difference. It's focused on, <clears throat> so it's using a critical race lens theory, but looking at ways of making culturally responsible and culturally sustaining pedagogies, you know, democratic education. I'm a huge fan of the idea of like the socially justice orientated student, you know, where you teach the teach kids skills. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of people who don't understand CRT get wrong. I'm like, you all know me, cards on the table. I am left wing. I believe in socialized healthcare, you know, I, I am the antithesis to the Republican Party. But if I, there's a kid with Republican values in my class, I'm not going to be like, you're wrong. My whole, the whole concept of my research, my work is that you teach a kid the skills to critically analyze something. Doesn't matter what that is. You know, like you hear a lot of people, I've done my research. Like, no, you've looked at a video on Facebook, maybe YouTube if you're lucky. Research is actually sitting down, reading peer reviewed papers, getting out of schools, talking to kids, talking to people, understanding the theory behind it. And that, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to help those, I want to work with those the students in the communities that that actually need resistance right now. So and... with, with critical race theory, was that something that you learned in Scotland or was that something you learned when you got here? Because that's mostly focused on America, is that correct? Yeah, so CRT, you know, I know Aisha spoke about it last week, you know, as it's groundings with Derek Bell and the law schools on the East Coast. Um, and actually, I think this is something that I, I haven't really heard anyone say anything about. No one's really said, oh, you know, here's what CRT is in right. education. So actually, I'd, I'd really like to quote if that's okay. Yeah, please. Uh, so this is from one of my favorite writers, a woman called Gloria Ladson Billings. Highly recommend. A lot of her stuff is really accessible, despite the fact that it's, you know, master's level, PhD level education research. But she says, essentially, the CRT project in education becomes the attempt to, one, name and discuss the pervasive daily reality of racism in US society, which serves to disadvantage people of color. Expose and deconstruct seemingly colorblind or race neutral policies and practices which entrench the disp disparate treatment of people of non-white persons. Legitimize and promote the voices and narrative of people of color as sources of critique of the dominant social order, which purposely devalues them. Revisit civil rights law and liberalism to address their inability to dismantle and expunge discriminatory socio-political relationships and change and improve challenges to race neutral and multicultural movements in education, which have made white student behavior the norm. Right. Yeah. So, like 
there's there are bits of that that's like yeah that's that that sounds quite complicated like point four is a lot of big words <clears throat> but really it's just looking at everything we see and, and sort of questioning it so no one questions the fact that redlining happened you know, right and, and redlining but, is is like basically controlling who can buy real estate in certain areas yeah it's yes exactly i mean everybody knows the term sundown towns or yeah a eugene you know, at one point was one you know and basically anybody of color is not allowed after dark to be outside and so I mean, and it, it's those well, it's question of why were those things so you know um an idea of so i think the idea of colorblindness is really interesting to me um i i don't fully subscribe to kendy's everyone's you know racist I think everyone has has racist racist biases within them. I urge everyone to take one of those inherent bias tests yeah. and realize just how bad you are. Sure, <clears throat> um, but I think just talking about it is important. And yeah. I know Aisha touched on this last week. We are now having these conversations. You know, the fact that I'm on your podcast <clears throat> talks about critical race theory. Right. I mean, we um, could just talk about football. You know. So yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, I think. I think it's important to think about when it with critical race theory with examining, you know, the history and uh, of systematic racism. It's it's useful because anybody that has seen legislation pass, like when you talk about the civil rights uh, laws over in in history, anytime anything is passed, it's not good. It's a compromise, you know, between the people that want it and the people that don't. So with civil rights, there's been there's been gains and progress made, but it's not like they're like, oh, in 1860, you know, slaves were freed. And in 1960, racism ended like that's in, that's not how it worked. You know what I'm saying? There's these little gains towards. And, you know, right now we're looking at the Voting Rights Act, you know, and it's again, it's going to be a, if it passes at all, it's going to be a compromise. So it's going to. So. When people, that's one of the things that I hear for the gripe about like critical race theory. They're like, this is a thing of the past. This is over with. And it's just, it's just not true. You know, it's not. And as a history teacher, you know, social studies teacher, I, I live in the past. Right. To an extent, you know, I'm fascinated by history. And actually that was one of the things that really brought me to want to teach in the States. Like I'm fascinated by <clears throat> particularly U.S. racial history. Sure. Because it, it's not what I was taught back home. You know, we were taught about the slave ships. We were taught about, you know, Scotland's role in the slave trade. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it came here and it's like, some slaves, they went on picnics. Sorry, and actually enslaved people is the, the term we should be using um, because slave would suggest. And that's something that, you know, that's using your language. Right. So slave versus enslaved person. Slave would suggest that that's all they are. They're nothing but sure. a slave. Yeah. And slave person suggests that they are a person. That it's against their will. That it's happening to. Yeah. Um, and so that's another aspect of the sort of critical race theory and, you know, culturally relevant pedagogies is acknowledging those little microaggressions. Yeah. And saying, okay, well, yeah, let's, let's change how we talk about things. And I, I do think that is happening. I just think there's such a pushback with a sort of culture war on the right. And the right have admitted this. They've said as much that it's about if everything's CRT, you can fight against anything. Right. Um, All you have to talk about is, is CRT and socialism, and then, you know, you're going to win elections. So, And this is the first time I think I've really understood what 
what they're talking about. Yeah. Like, you know, there's been other times like, it took me years to understand trickle down economics. And actually, in the end, I was like, oh, no, I understood it. I just realized it didn't work. Yeah, I saw a meme yeah. one time, and it's my favorite about trickle down economics. And it's a mom and a daughter, teenage daughter, or whatever. And she, she asked the mom, probably like middle school age she asked the mom how does trickle down economics work and the mom says well the one percent gets all the money and then the daughter says and then what and the mom says no that's it <laughs> so yeah uh so you'd mentioned races so, real quick or go ahead yeah. go ahead no i was just gonna say you know so the fact that i understand and and don't get me wrong i am by no means an expert on crt sure you know i i use it as a framework uh and we apply it you know and use it, you know, sort of the way I've explained in the Lights and Villains article. But you know, it kind of vaguely get be like, actually, no, that that's not CRT, and I know it's not CRT because I've written articles on it. Right. Well, uh, and I think it's good it, when with with you as a teacher here, there's a benefit to learning the material with the students. I mean, not that you have a better understanding. Obviously, you'll be prepared before the student walks in the classroom. But it's also an experience where you can come from an outsider's perspective, evaluating it. And we're, again, we're evaluating the past. It's not, I mean, there is things that are still true today. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this whole thing goes. I think there's just so much misinformation about it. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little one, bit about, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say one thing, like on the teaching front, uh, if there's any aspiring teachers listening, the best bit of advice I got from my department chair was, as long as you're a page ahead of the kids, you can teach them. Right, exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you had mentioned the UK and Scotland's in involvement in sl the slave trade. Let's talk a little about some of the similarities between uh, the racism in America and the racism in the UK. Because yeah. a lot of Americans don't know. I mean, you know, it's, a lot of these stories started with, with England and England's colonization of the entire globe. You know, and I know sun as a, never set. the sun never set in the British Empire. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of today. There's a lot of racism alive and well in the UK. And talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I grew up, as I said, I grew up in a, I grew up in a mining community in Scotland, former city, former mining community, because Thatcher made good on her threats to destroy our mine by using MI5. But that's an entirely different story. And I'm not even going to put allegedly, Stella Remington, come for me. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a, a white town, you know, we had, so I had a school, high school of about 1,200 kids. There were maybe 10 East Asian, primarily Chinese descent, and they were Scottish. You know, they were, but their families were from East Asia. <clears throat> Same with South Asia. We maybe had a few more, but again, all second third generation scots um i remember we had one black kid and she joined when i was in fourth year it was like oh my god there's a black kid and like not in a oh there's a black kid like we have a black kid now it's just different yeah yeah and and so i grew up like that was always my take i wouldn't call it color blindness i've always been aware of race but as i grew um you know, started going to the bigger cities like Edinburgh's five hundred thousand, Glasgow about eight hundred, and they they do have much bigger uh, sort of multicultural populations. That being said, Edinburgh's like twelve percent diverse. Yeah, uh, you know, so it, it's small populations, um, and like yeah, I grew up there was races. I I grew up with a guy who used to be a really good friend of mine, and I remember 
uh, hadn't seen him for years. I was working in a grocery store as a student, and he came in and he had a. I was like, oh, how you doing, man? He was like, oh, you know, I've been better. Like, and he showed me his ankle and he had one of those tracking tags on. Right. I was like, what have you done? And he was like, racist assault. And I was like, come on, man. Like, you're better. You know better than that. So he, he was, was charged like, with, like, bias, essentially? Oh, yeah. So he'd assaulted someone and it was racially aggravated. Wow. He'd, he'd, he'd attacked someone because they were Asian. Wow. And so there was always instances like that. And... As I so I grew up, went to college, we had the SDL and the EDL and the BNP. So you're going to hear a lot of acronyms. So the SDL and the EDL, the Scottish Defence and the English Defence Leagues. Same thing, like knuckle, like Proud Boys, but more knuckle-draggy, if right. that's possible. Yeah. Same with the BNP and then UKIP. They were like the, the political wings of those parties. And they were very much like, we're not racist, we're not racist. It's like... You know, but you all were part of the National Front back in the 70s and 80s, which was, you know, real race issues back then. Right. And, and you're right, it, a lot of it stems from colonialism. You know, the people that emigrated to the UK were generally people who were in the Commonwealth. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you look at, so recently there was the Windrush scandal. There was a group of people from the Caribbean who would came over and were being denied citizenship, despite the fact they'd been there since like the 60s. You know, they'd come with their parents who were British. Um, and there is an element of like Brexit. Brexit was primarily about race, right? Well, to and so, so now there's a sometimes there's a, a crossover between nationalism and racism. And so, how how is that? How are they different? Like, how is nationalism different than racism? So I think as and and this is interesting. So I I would consider myself slightly a nationalist in terms of. Scottish nationalism. Mm -hmm. I want Scotland to be independent. But I want Scotland to be independent and open, and I don't care who lives there. Like it's a very civic nationalism. Whereas I think the other form is almost more patriotism. Yeah. And that blind love of your country and need for your country to be yours and be like you. Right. Um, and I think the way that changes can be really interesting. You yeah, know? those. Are, that's uh, a really like, different distinction because I think in America – patriotism is a good thing it should be it's been bastardized but nationalism is not you know in my opinion and i would see i i understand completely why in scotland it would be a different take because you're still not a sovereign nation essentially part of the uk where someone else is making the decisions for the country so that's an interesting one because technically we have a soft we have a, we have a sovereign like right. we have a queen right right and that is a separate King, king or king queendom essentially from that of England. It's two crowns. See, and we had theirs first. I might add, <laughs> right? They stole ours. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it is. It's fascinating. So in Scotland, like, I'm proud to be Scottish, not because Scotland's the best country in the world or because anything except that. Like, I'm proud of what we do. Yeah. You know, I'm really proud of the way we, we've changed from the. 60s 70s and 80s uh and really growing as a country we are we're a liberal country you know we're pretty left wing um we don't pay for prescriptions for example right. as you do in england sure and if you take um, care of your people that's something to be proud of you know if yeah and i mean do I you have is there you, big issues with like poverty and that kind of stuff we have don't get me wrong yeah it's not perfect um we have some issues in education um we I would say the COVID uh, crisis has been handled relatively well. Like, it's not perfect. The SNP have been in power for 
12 years. So that's the Scottish National Party. They're not a racist National Party, unlike the British National Party, who were. Right. Are. So now you had mentioned uh, real quick. Uh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. no. Okay. So you, you had mentioned real quick about, you know, your pride of being Scottish. And now that you're living in America, I'm sure even it, it's felt even stronger, though you this will become your home it's still like your roots matter to you. Now you would, you and I had talked before this yesterday uh, about how it's interesting to you, how Americans with ancestry in Europe hold, hold on to their original quote unquote, original national pride generations later. So I'm Irish and I talk about it a lot. I mean, I I've kind of made my identity based on that and it's a couple generations back. So talk about how that's really interesting to you to see how Americans kind of decipher their, uh, original quote-unquote national pride if they came from I europe i think it's because y'all are national immigrants like you are there is there are only some americans right and none of them claim to be irish <laughs> right seriously um and i i understand that i used to think it was really weird i do understand that need to have a history have a cultural identity um and i think what the issue is in this, the u.s is that it, it quite often is seen as a national identity, um, but it's not like. So, for example, my my in laws are Eastern European. Uh, like the surname is Lutch, uh, or Luch. Um, you know, my in laws' family is Hungarian, but they're only Hungarian because it was Hungary at the time. They were it was actually Austro-Hungary when they left, uh, and my father-in-law technically Italian Slovakian you know but he talks about just being Eastern European and I think it it's really interesting about when that person came or when that family came and what part of the ancestry was decided to be important right um and I get like you know I think there is an element of wanting to hold on to your past wanting to hold on to your your ancestry and make sense of it this new place that your family are in and like, yeah, I've, so I've actually have more family here in the States than I do back home on one side. Um, my great granddad and his brother moved to the US in 1904. Wow. Went yeah. through Ellis Island and like me and my brother went and saw Ellis Island, saw where they came through, like saw their things really cool. Yeah. Like, and I, like the family here talk about that. That's how my, my great granddad is Ellis Island. Yeah. Yeah. Great granddad lasted six months. He was like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> this isn't for me. Went back home. Uh, his brother stayed married, had 10 kids. Um, and, you know, so I'm actually going to Pride this afternoon with my cousin on that side of the family. And he's like, I'm really interested. Like, I know I'm Scottish, but, like, I don't know what that means. And I think well, people like you, you, I think you probably have more of a understanding of what culturally irish is oh yeah i i don't know a ton about scotland at all i know a little bit about ireland i'm gonna i'm gonna learn a lot more i'm going there here soon hopefully but yeah yeah um but i think like you have a bit more of an understanding of what that actually means it's not just woo st patrick's day sure. um you know you, you do have a bit more understanding i think that would that's all i'd like for people to say is like if they're like oh i'm scottish like, all right cool like because i get a lot people are like oh, i'm scottish I used to get a lot when I was an admissions rep and talking to kids, and they'd be like, actually, I'm going to do the American accent. I apologize to all your students. They'd be like, hi, I'm Scottish. It's like, are you, though? Are you? Right. Like, yeah, my grandfather was a McLeod. Do you know them? It's like, no. No, do you know them? Yeah. 
That's like when you talk to someone from Minnesota, you're like, oh, so you're from Minnesota? Do you know Prince? So uh, I'm going to play a quick little ad spot uh, from my sponsor, and then we're going to talk about your Australian political podcast. So we'll be right back after the uh, on the other side. The Spent the Rent podcast is sponsored by Oregon Cashflow Pro, featuring Wealthcare Wednesdays, the live stream, a Q&A on all things finance. Go to OregonCashflowPro.com to find out more. More wealth, less debt, fast at Oregon Cashflow Pro. So this will be fun. We're going to talk about uh, a podcast. It's called Don't Tell the Pilot uh, that you are a part of that is primarily based in Australia. And this is the irony is that you are the American correspondent or one of the American correspondents, which is hilarious to me. And so tell me about the podcast, what it's about, what you guys do. Uh, yeah. yeah, talk on that. So, uh, yeah, we're, uh, don't tell the pilot, uh, Australian politics podcast. Um, it's so much like me, my brother doesn't live in Scotland. He's based in Brisbane, uh, with his wife and daughter, uh, one of his best mates, uh, TJ, who is our podcast producer, presenter, etc., <clears throat> was, we got really drunk and he'd been talking about doing a podcast for a while. And so they started doing it and he's got a couple of friends who are Aborigines. His sister pops in from Paris uh, and, you know, it's, they take a look at what's happening in Australia that week or that fortnight, uh, that two week period. Um, and it's sort of rotating set of guests. So I was out there the Christmas before the election. No, I can't be right. I was out there like a few years before the election and Tom was like, you need to you need to come on and talk to us about America. Stuff's going on. Like if you're gonna be out there, I need you on there. And I was like, Yeah, sure. And nothing came of it and then about six months later Tom was like, Hey, you still interested? So I used to get up and re- record with him at four AM in Austin. Uh, and it got to the point where I was like, why don't I just do American-based episodes? Yeah, it's pretty rad. Um, I listened to a little bit of it, and anyone can find it anywhere on any streaming uh, site. It's called Don't Tell the Pilot. And it's really interesting because there's a lot of uh, parallels, again, between America and Australia and what's happening with their media. Uh, anybody unfamiliar, Rupert Murdoch, who I'm not sure his role anymore with Fox News, but he was the founder of Fox News. He's basically doing to Australia what he did to the U.S. by spreading disinformation. And it's it's really interesting to see a rise of kind of far-right extremism in Australia. And you could talk about that a little bit more, too. Yeah. So what I think is really interesting is that uh, Morrison, who's the prime minister, has turned into some sort of like pound shop um, Trump. Yeah. Uh, and what's, So Morrison uh, is real, real Pentecostal religious. And he's allowing a lot of that to dictate his policy regarding COVID, I think. Uh, so, I mean, there was huge anti-vax protests in Sydney the other week there. Wow. Um, you know, and it's like, well, well, we're in the middle of it. We're still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, oh, we're, in the, Murdoch, we're in the worst part of it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I follow Sky News Australia, which is this, you know, the equivalent Sky is what? you know, sort of Foxtel use uh, generally abroad. And I follow it on my podcast account just for interest. And there's sure. times where I read it, I'm like, this is a parody account? No, no, this is the real account. Because some of their hot takes are like Fox News. It's the same uh, thing, and, yeah. And that's Murdoch. Uh, he did the same with Brexit. Uh, yeah. He 
he does his little puppet dance and he's so powerful that you know he owns so many british and australian politicians and i've no doubt american politicians yeah um and he gets them to do their bidding and he's rich enough you know he is one percent he is i mean i don't know if you've seen succession I'm not but sure i would I highly recommend yeah. it's based on um the murdochs yeah i'll have to look it up you know that's the thing it's like people don't understand that when these media conglomerates basically they have so much control that i taught i did an episode on the podcast about global populism quite a, you know, a couple years ago now and this is not just in america like the trump global populism it's it's everywhere and it's 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 they they talk about it as we had mentioned this earlier it's patriotism no it's nationalism and it's you know like the america first stuff is actually pretty dangerous rhetoric i mean the sentiment is fine whatever you know i get that it sells but it's the goal is division is literally defining who is an american and who is not so who is a second class citizen and that's definitely the whole you watch fox news you watch i mean I always think about it as if you close your eyes and you think about who an American is, it should not be one person. It should not be a, you know, a white male, <laughs> you know, it should be, it should be a Hispanic farmer or a, or a Latinx, uh, Senator, you know, you know what I mean? Like it should be every, every area of class, color, everything, you know? And so it's really, it's really scary when, when you have these places that are Dominated, dominated by white population. I don't know a lot about Australia, but much like Scotland, it is very much a white I, population, right? I mean, partly because the British were incredibly exceptional at eradicating our Aborigines. Yeah. Um, and actually, that, that's a really interesting, like, if you look at the, comp, uh, the twist between New Zealand and Australia, uh, the Maoris, uh, so the uh, native New Zealanders, were warriors. You know they were they were um, respected to a greater or lesser extent by the Brits, whereas Aborigines weren't warriors, so they just slaughtered them. So in New Zealand, um, they've been able to maintain some of that kind of to, to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. And don't be wrong, there are still a lot of the issues there, I'm, I'm sure. definitely whitewashing to an extent there. Um, yeah. But one of the things that Australia's Australia's seen a lot of immigration as well, but the racism there is really it's still very on on the nose yeah you know i mean my brother when he first got there there was these guys at his, at his work talking about immigrants i oh, don't like immigrants well or immigrants and he's like white scottish guy here immigrant hey ah uh, but you're fine you're white you speak english and that's a problem and that, yeah. that was in a in a corporate office yeah. you know and i remember him taking the, the his company were doing a, a big push on social justice and racial equity and they had a petition in the boardroom that people could sign sandy had been off a few days went up signed it realized that not like very few of his team had signed it so sort of walked down it's like y'all have got until the end of the day to sign that petition if you don't sign that petition i don't want to see you back here tomorrow right um and it's that like they will use slurs in in ways that you know the majority would never consider and it's almost like you know 1970s britain yeah you know where like i remember like when i was young my grand would say or my grandparents would say things that like you know you're like oh, yeah no. but that still exists i mean i've i've with england 
I've read about the papers in England, like the tabloids, more or less, but it's a huge thing. It's like much bigger than in the United States, right? That yeah, and so, I've heard that they still use slurs on like headlines. You know that some of them will. Um, so you know the Mail Online, that gossip. You know, I don't know if your other your partner reads it. My other half occasionally does. You know, like fashion, all that kind of stuff. The Daily Mail is evil. The Daily Mail was founded by a fascist. Yeah, it's founded by Oswald Mosley who was the first non-German to be invited to dine with Hitler after his rise to power. Right. The only thing my, for off the record or off the point, but my girlfriend to answer what you were saying, the only thing that she reads is COVID numbers. <laughs> so, but it was one so. of those things I found a lot of American, and it's because, don't get me wrong, Daily Mail style section I think is supposed to be very, very good. Um. You know, and a lot of people here don't realize that the Daily Mail is an evil, evil, evil organization. Yeah. Uh, and you're right, you know, the Sun, uh, which is Mortacone, uh, can't be, uh, is barely sold in Liverpool because they told some pretty horrific lies about Liverpool fans. The soccer fans after the Hillsborough disaster back in 1986, where like 97 of them died. You know, these are, the, and, and they still trade on this. The Sun, uh, in the mirror. So Piers Morgan, your man uh, who likes a daytime TV show, He's terrible. Uh, he was yeah. responsible for hacking the voicemail of a dead child who'd been murdered and not found yet. Wow. Allegedly. Yeah, Piers Morgan yeah, so is these, disgusting. But... These people run those organizations and they have no qualms about about driving that that need for hatred among some of the right. And, you know, I see it here on Fox News and uh, OAN uh, and we Brenton tried to have their own version of that recently as well and it was as hilariously bad as you would yeah I fortunately have never really digested anything on OAN America only whatever or whatever it is I don't even care and then there's Newsmax you know and all these new news channels and I'm a believer in free speech and so I do believe that people need to be able to to have, they can have their voice, but you know, it's, it's kind of important for people to also educate themselves on what they're being told. I mean, so, that's something actually like just going back to the differences between home and here. You know, we have pretty much freedom of speech in Scotland as well, but there's an understanding that, yeah, you have the right to say something, but you don't have the right to a platform and you don't have the right to any consequences of what you've said. So if you're tweeting about how much you hate black people or something, and your boss sees that, you, you've got the right to say it. And that's but the you same don't here. have the right to keep your job. And that's the same I here. Think, you know, like they, people talk about cancel culture, and realistically, cancel culture is societal. It's not. I mean, there's, there's, you can't just. Uh, if you know, there's, I mean, first of all, employment at will in most states. I know Oregon is. So if if they want to get rid of you, they can just get rid of you. You know. So there's different things with contracts. But so I I want to talk about one more thing before we get out of here. But I do want to remind people, the podcast, the Australian political podcast, is really interesting, especially for for people like me and, and Americans that have, are not familiar with the landscape of Australian and global politics. Uh, so check out don't look don't tell the pilot. It's really funny and fun. And and it's lighthearted and stuff. The stuff that I read, I mean, it's pretty brutal, but it's it's good. We we are pretty savage. So that's one thing I want to mention. You know, like me, Colin, is different from Col 
and Eugene. Which okay, Colin name. Eugene is Colin the me. character. And I did link the Twitter, uh, your Twitter uh, handle. So if people want to see some of your musings on Twitter, yeah, I'm sure so it's pretty fun. What I would call is Colin Eugene's almost like a caricature sure. of me. Right. Colin Eugene's the non pragmatic, the let's put every up against the wall right. socialist. Right. Whereas I'm the pragmatic Keynesian, like, I understand that, you know, we can't completely dismantle capitalism. <laughs> right. Um, so now I want to talk about this before we get out of here. Uh, Trump and, and Scotland. So Trump and the golf courses, golf resorts, he's in a little bit of hot water right now. Uh, yeah, and so, I, you know, I know that that there's a lot of people that salivate anytime a headline is dropped that like Trump is under investigation. Tell us a little bit about what's happening with, with Scotland and Donald Trump. So just get a wee bit of background uh, on that. So Trump bought, um, had put in, bought or tried to buy land, put in plan permission up near Aberdeen, which is up North East coast, big oil city, a lot of, or tradition, a lot of money because of that. Um, and there was planning issues. He wanted to build it next to sand dunes that were protected for environmental reasons. He wanted to build land that would require him to have bought four family farms. And there was one guy who was just like, nah, nothing. And there was some bits. I actually looked into it last night after we spoke. I think it was on the level, him getting the planning permission in the end. Um, it's one of those things that could have went either way. So he got he got stuff, um, and then Scotland decided to build a wind farm off the coast of his golf course. Yeah. I'm not saying it was to annoy him, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> uh, and so, in true Trump terms, he threw a big huff, demanded they removed, asked the first minister, which is basically like our president, to step in. He said no, um, and he refused. He said, "Well, I will never spend another penny in this country." He then bought a second golf course a few years later. But up front, uh, both golf courses have made terrifying losses. Yeah. I mean, they are... Well, that's the Trump way. You know, you put you slap your name on it that. and tell people it's succeeding, but it's not. And, um, and you know, so I've read some stuff about money laundering. I mean, there's a lot going on there. So I, people yeah. will have to do their own research, but just so, just Google Trump in Scotland and it's not a good Scott, thing. One, one thing I'd say about Scotland doesn't really mess around with money laundering, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, we have what are called McMafia laws. Uh, Scotland, Mafia, Mick. Right. It's not a McDonald's joke. But um, <laughs> the idea was that like we can go off, really heavily go after money that's been squirreled away by criminals. And that gives the Scottish government real power to actually investigate what he's been up to in Scotland and where all that money comes from. Uh, and my guess is that it's probably similar places that the money, the IRS and the uh, attorney in New York are looking at. Oh, I yeah. think yeah. Scotland, Scotland doesn't mess about. And if he claims to be one of us, we will treat him like one of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It's, it's not a good thing. And again, it's, he doesn't, he's not protected in Scotland. You know, like he is here by half of the political elite. So we're going to get out of here. Colin, it's really cool to get to know you better. Uh, you had talked before we hit record about maybe coming over and playing some bass guitar. So I'm, ex I'm excited about that becoming a reality. Uh, anybody uh, listening, I'm really excited because I'm working on a new album under the name Patty Rose that I'm just, I'm over the moon about uh, this new project. So I, So keep your eyes peeled and your ears ready. 
uh, for my album. It's called Begin Again. That's coming soon. But for now, we're going to end this with a song. And you handpicked this band. This is a Scottish band. Uh, and so tell us a little bit about why you picked this song. So this is the Dead Sea Souls. Uh, they are band from Whitburn, where I grew up. Uh, really good friend of mine, Gary, is the bassist. Uh, and actually, they will be going on stage for the first comeback to gig in four or five years yeah. in about an hour. So good luck, guys. I'm sure it'll be rough and rusty. There's a, It's blue balls. When bands play right now, they've got blue balls. They've been they've been wanting to play, and they haven't. I went and saw No Effects in Colorado, and it was garbage. They were really sloppy. You know, it had been a long time. But I'm sure that they've been we, practicing. We'll talk offline about that, Pani. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I really love them. They're kind of really bouncy, uh, ska. I just really love the track that I picked. Um, there's just some really great bass lines in it. Gary's a fantastic bassist. Yeah, I really um, dig it. It's really cool. It's it's kind of like Scottish pop punk, you know, and, and I love it. Yeah. That's, the, that's the type of music I love. Great. They have an album on all your various streaming services, couple of EPs. And if you're listening in Scotland somehow, they are touring. Try and get a ticket. Sure. Yeah, so the Dead Sea Souls and Colin Johnston, thank you very much. Uh, this Pleasure, is the, my friend. This is the Dead Sea Souls with the song All Heart. Shoot